Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Really excited to welcome Mercer head coach Kyle Hannon to the show. How's it going, Kyle? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's great. It's, uh, it's always good to talk lacrosse with you. Um, I think uh, when we first started talking lacrosse, I had just taken the job at Denver, and you had just taken the job at Colorado College, and we realized very quickly that we loved to talk lacrosse. We've been doing it for the last 20 years. Absolutely. We, we had a lot of, I, I know I was in my house and my wife was rolling her eyes at me many, many evenings at like 1130, quarter 12 after two, three hour conversations, but valuable time for sure. There were so many great discoveries going on back then in the late 90s, early 2000s, weren't there? And it's interesting because those discoveries are kind of resurfacing, aren't they? They are. Totally. A lot of those things we were talking about kind of went away maybe for a little bit. And now when we're having our conversations and, and we're just doing what we love to do, evaluate and, and learn lacrosse, we're, we're seeing a lot of that stuff come back. Yeah, everything's kind of full circle. I mean, it's funny because there, there aren't that many things that you haven't heard before. It's more about how you're looking at them at the time. Right. Yeah. All right, let's, um, I, I want to, as I do with most guests, I want to dive into your lacrosse journey a little bit um, and hear how you um how you came up as a as a as a player and, and eventually into a coach and hear about some of your mentors. So um, why don't you kick it off with you know how you got introduced to the game and and who were your mentors in high school? Sure, I I had a little bit of a different path. You know, growing up in Maryland, you would think, you know, being in this game, coaching for for thirty years, that I would have started as a young kid and that would have been my life, and that really wasn't the case. I I I started very late. I, 
obviously like most guys that are in the game and, and choose this as a career have played sports all their life. But I, I was a, a pretty heavy football guy young and through high school football, basketball and baseball. And it wasn't until ninth grade um, that I, I grew up in Reisterstown, Maryland, which was kind of outside of the private school sector of, you know, in Maryland and lacrosse probably wasn't quite as prevalent there at, at the time. And, uh, and a good friend of mine, his dad was a youth coach, lacrosse coach, and played club ball for it while he was in college. And so he had been playing, and he was constantly talking to me about it. But I was so busy with football, then right into basketball, right into baseball, never really connected. And, and finally, um, he was playing catch with his dad in the backyard. And I, I was right before ninth grade, the summer before ninth grade. And I'd, I just grabbed a stick and started playing and we were talking and his dad was like, you have to do this. It incorporates all the sports that you play and it's fortunate to have some success in some of those sports. And he's like, this, this is perfect for you. And just kind of fell in love with it. But then the tricky thing, then we got started that year. And uh, at the end of the basketball season, I broke my ankle in ninth grade. <laughs> so I wasn't even able to play in ninth grade. So I really got, connected to the game and played a ton in, in uh, going into 10th grade. And then wow. 10th grade was the first full year of lacrosse that I had. And, and back then you got your gear in March and you handed it in when the season was over and were a lot of out of season opportunities. So um, it was, it was a late start, but the thing about starting late is I was, I was obsessed. Once I started to play it and learn it, it was just kind of like, it, it, it kind of took over my life, so to speak. And then I, I knew after 10th grade that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, wanted to play college lacrosse. And football I had some success there, but I was a tweener. You know, I wasn't, I was a quarterback, kind of an option court, but I wasn't big enough for college, right? And there were some, but basketball just wasn't, wasn't big enough, wasn't, wasn't good enough to be a collegiate basketball player. But lacrosse, I kind of knew that might be a niche, and and that was my focus, and and uh, continued to play the other two sports, and and uh, really just kind of wanted to. By my senior year, I was I was in a position where I, I was being recruited and had some options, and it came true, and and uh, I chose Salisbury to go there. A couple of my buddies were there, and they had a very traditionally rich program. And, um, and jumped right in. And I think the other thing that helped me, I started so late that I always had a chip on my shoulder because I always felt like skill-wise, I was always behind. You know, there was always somebody that was a little more nifty with the stick. And, um, you know, I was fortunate because I could move pretty well and could run well. So those things were fine, but it was the skill that kind of kept me on edge and, and kept me fighting and and as that developed I enjoyed a college career and and uh and knew I wanted to get into coaching uh while probably even before I got into college and uh, a big reason getting into coaching was I um I didn't have the the you know kind of all-american family growing up it never had a father figure so playing sports young all the way through my coaches were, I was so connected to them and had so much respect for, for the coaches in all my sports, all the way going through. And I, I just uh, loved what they were about and what they did. And, and uh, that's probably what got my, 
got my juices flowing towards becoming a college coach. And, and, um, and once I started playing college, I just kind of getting into some mentors. I, I Hank Jancic was my coach at, at Salisbury. Oh, wow. And, uh, it just seeing him day in, day out, his passion for what he did and his ability to, to kind of motivate in discreet ways, you know, and really press guys' hot buttons and get guys to compete. Uh, I, I just thought, I just really gravitated towards that. And that's when I really started thinking, this is 100% what I want to do. And um, just had a great experience playing for him and learning. And to be honest, that's when I really started learning lacrosse. Like I would fool around with it in high school. We, my high school coach was a great, great guy. Didn't really have a lacrosse background, but a coaching background. So he was organized and, had us in certain drills, but I didn't really learn the game. It was more just kind of be an athlete, go out there, run by guys and pass it or shoot it. And uh, I really started to learn the game with Coach Jancic at Salisbury. And and that was intriguing with the X's and O's. And and uh, that's when I knew that was my, my passion and what I was going to do. So where did you kick off your coaching career? I, uh, I, I stayed. I, I uh, finished up at Salisbury. And in, in my, my last year, um, I, I was asked to stay on board and, and uh, become a graduate assistant coach. And uh, I was the second one. They had just kind of started that program. Drew Hall, a boys Latin guy that played at Salisbury, was the first GA, and he did a good job. And, and he obviously coached me in that position, thought it would be a great opportunity to get started. And I was familiar with the program, and I, I thought that comfort level would be really good for me to – branch out. So I started at Salisbury um, and was there for two years. And then after, after Salisbury, I had a really neat opportunity to, to go to, I was obviously looking for a full-time job and just really wanted to coach. I didn't, at that point, you know, the divisions weren't as prominent as they are now. It's just like yeah. stay in college and coach. And, and Bates College in the NESCAC, had a football lacrosse coaching position and um, passionate about football, thought that would be really neat to bring it back into my life. And, uh, and that's what I, I ended up going to, to Bates College. It was a great lacrosse experience just because Webb Harrison, who was the head coach, great, great guy, learned a lot about balancing with him because he was the head lacrosse coach and football coach. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to be a head football coach and have other sport responsibilities, obviously, especially in the NESCAC. So that was a great lacrosse experience because he kind of handed the keys over to me and said, look, you're young, but you, you've got some experience and, and uh, let's, I, I really want you to oversee this program. So great experience being young, really having to organize and understand all the different aspects. Um, so coach the receivers, got to start throwing the football around in the fall and had some fun. And, and then, uh, and then the spring came and, and uh, really enjoyed that experience. It was a step up there. There's no doubt just because of responsibility uh, from a responsibility level and, and me kind of being my guy, you know, I was it. And uh, you know, Webb certainly was there and, and, and helped and mentored, but it was kind of my, my uh, opportunity to, I guess, shine, so to speak. 
Yeah. And uh, so what years were you at Bates? I was at Bates, let me think, in 80, 87, 88. No, I'm sorry, 80, 88, 89. Okay. Because then in 89, I had the opportunity, um, the Hobart assistant position uh, was open. And I was on the circuit, you know, kind of doing all the camps. Those were all overnight camps then. So you're in the dorms and you're sharing stories and you're meeting guys and great, great days, no doubt, days. as far as the, the connections and, and just sharing ideas. Uh, some, of that's, some of that's gone. Uh, a lot of that's gone. Yeah. It's just gone in a different direction. But, but uh, just got to meet some people, knew about. Hobart's tradition, obviously, everybody did then, winning uh, Division Three national championships year in, year out. Uh, something that, obviously, I, my competitive nature wanted to be part of. And that was kind of like Salisbury could never, could never get Hobart. So it was kind of like, man, might have the opportunity to, to be part of something super special and different than what my experience has, has led me to. So... I ended up applying for that job and, and, um, and was hired, was offered that job. So it was a very short stint at Bates. It wasn't even a full year. Yeah. It was a football season, lacrosse season, out and moved to Geneva, New York. And, uh, and what an unbelievable experience, just understanding like culture and history and how connected everybody was to that program because of how it was run for so many years, but also the success, right? I mean, that, that ties people in. And that was really eye-opening to me because my earlier experiences were like, practices at three o'clock, man, have a practice plan, go out there, practice, and then go about your day, where Hobart really brought everything together. Um, and it was just a different feel and, a great learning experience for me. So there, it, it, that was an interesting situation also because I was hired, Coach Urich was still there. Um, so Mike Hanna and, and Coach Urich hired me. Uh, and then right after they hired me, I made my way up to, to Geneva, New York, and Coach Urich took the Georgetown job. So, so right away, it was kind of like, I, there wasn't a head coach at that time. And Mark Van Arsdale was still there as an assistant. Wow. And, um, but he was very heavily involved with soccer in the fall. And, and, um, and then obviously lacrosse in the, the, the spring and still had a, a pretty heavy lacrosse influence throughout the year, but he yeah. was the on-campus uh, soccer coach that really kept everything going. Um, so that first fall, I was the first, I, I believe this is true, and it was a story at least back then, I was the first non-Hobart guy to ever go wow. into that program, coming from the South, coming from Salisbury, and I, here I am in the fall, like, thrown right to the wolves, because I, I was kind of the fall coach under, under Mark's guidance and, and uh, you know, preparation and everything else, but I, I was out there kind of running, running the fall. So they didn't have a head coach. Oh, about, say that again. They had not hired a head coach yet. No, they didn't hire BJ actually until the winter. So we went all the way through the fall, uh, ran that that search, 
and uh, quite a few very good candidates came through. That was another really good learning experience for a somewhat young coach, really getting involved and picking up all of these older coaches, you know, Hall of Fame coaches that would come into Geneva and kind of were looking at that job and, and interviewing. And I was kind of the guy that had to get them around from, yeah. from building to building and from the airport to the campus. So those conversations were really great as well, just listening and learning and, and uh, bouncing questions off of those guys. But BJ was hired after fall ball in the winter. And then, uh, and then the staff was complete. BJ was in and, and uh, Mark Van Arsdale was the first assistant. And, uh, and I was the second assistant. Now, B.J. O'Hara came from Dartmouth at that time? Yes, he did. Yep. And he, uh, again, you, you always take things from guys that you work with, right? But that was such a different experience for me. Like I said, about just learning about tradition and culture and overall programs and his ability to to, to understand the game and process quickly. That's what I was always amazed with BJ is he'd be on the offensive side and then look down at the defensive side for a second and realize, hey, these guys are out of whack. Go down, get them together, boom, they're, they're back and organized. And his ability to understand the game and see it and, and quickly um, in, in his way get control of situations was really impressive to me. And uh, also the way he engaged the team. I just thought that was a different experience. He was very professional with them. Matter of fact, um, I think he, he garnered a lot of respect from his past and what he had done. But then going into that, probably pretty hard. Looking back at it now, being old then, I didn't realize it because I was young. But, you know, going from Dartmouth, going back to your alma mater, you know, following Dave Urich, you know, and jumping right in there. Yeah. And then continuing the championship level of lacrosse, that's a tough task. And BJ uh, jumped right into it and did a great job. How many championships did uh, BJ win? I believe he won four. As a coach there, I yeah, believe. As, he as won the head four. coach. As the head coach. Four. As a head coach, I believe he won four. So how long were you there? And they, I was there for, um, actually, I think he won three. And I, I was there for four years. And, um, you know, the, the great four years, obviously, got to coach some really good players. Yeah. I Open learned. Mask. That, there, there's some, like, big time, you know, there were big time players and, and a lot of guys that have gone on to be being great coaches, right? So n name a few of the people that you coached. No doubt. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I think my Hobart experience was – being a young coach at Salisbury and then Bates, I, I was coaching and kind of learning behind the scenes. And when I got to Hobart, I, I learned on the field as a coach. You know, I was learning from watching some of these great players and how they handled themselves in certain situations and the, their ability to make plays. And I mean, the guys, so many guys jumped to my, into my mind when I think about the greats that I was able to learn from and work with at Hobart. But Billy Miller was there. Yeah. Um, just a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete and player. And a great, great Billy Miller story. I hadn't met the guys yet. And they're, they were kind of in the old gym, his Bristol gym, and they were playing some pickup hoops and 
and and I kind of poked my head in there and I knew there were a couple lacrosse players. So I was just kind of meeting them. A couple came over and said, Hey, and Billy was shooting around, maybe, maybe playing like a two on two game and it had stopped. And uh, he came over, introduced himself and I was sitting there going, that's Billy Miller. You know, he's thin, you know, kind of wiry athletic guy yeah. had the ball in his hand. And like, after I met him, he looked over at me, went up and just like, two-hand dunked it, right? I mean, I was like, this guy's going to be really good. It was already good, but just a freak athlete. You His are. ability to just make plays. I felt like Billy – I mean, I couldn't sit there. I'm going to change his game. I don't think anybody was, but he was kind of what you talk a lot about with understanding who he was and learning the game and playing it the way he had to play it because he would do some things back then that weren't traditional and it's really not what you were teaching, but he was just so freakishly athletic. He'd get away with it. And I think if he kind of like Wayne Gretzky says, if I had to go back and play normal hockey, I would have never been the player. And I think Billy Miller was the same way. If he would have just done the traditional lacrosse things, he wouldn't have been one of the best players to ever play our game. Right. So it was really neat watching how he played and what he did. He, yeah. he would turn it over a decent amount, but the goals and the plays he would make, you'd forget all those. So he might turn it over three straight times trying to make a good play. And then the, his, his third touch or fourth touch, you forgot all those turnovers because it was just eye-opening with what he did. But also on that attack was Jeff Tambroni, um, really, really good player. Lance Savage, who I think is still out your way. Yep. He was in that uh, uh, on that attack unit. Matt Kerwick, oh, yeah. my first year, was a senior yep. uh, playing in the midfield and, and just kind of seeing how he operated. He was a – I don't know how many guys know. He was a really good hockey player also. Yeah. To see his skill set, he played a little bit more of – of that Canadian, Canadian yeah. bouncy, he was lefty, savvy. It wasn't a hundred miles an hour all the time. It was very collected and skilled and smart. But Matt Kerwick was a, a, a really good midfielder and on that team. Cabell Maddox was oh, yeah. as I was there came in and uh, he had a really good career there. Tim Delow, a big lefty that could shoot it, came over from from Army, and I don't know if his name's mentioned a lot, but he was a big, strong guy playing. Back in those days, you know, a 6'2", 215-pound. He played football as well. He was a football quarterback. Um, he could do some special things also. So it, it was just across the board, some really good defensemen. It, it was fun. Showing up practices when I was young, uh, you know, working with those guys were – it was really fun to go out there and watch those guys play. Yeah, for sure. And you guys, people don't realize that Hobart, you know, would have been arguably a top 10 Division One program at the time, right? Yes. Yeah. We played majority, and a big reason why they made the change, I believe, is because they were going to lose some of those games. But if I look back, just recollection, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I think at least 50% of the games we played back then were against Division One opponents. You know, the Syracuse rival, um, yeah. you know, Cornell. And, and the Cornell rival, a lot of them, the Colgate back then. And we could go on and on uh, with the Division I um, rival games that, that 
we would play. Uh, there were a lot of cross division games back then. It wasn't as specific as it is now. Right. Uh, but de definitely a top 10 division one program. Yeah, no, no, no. Some probably top five, probably some years. What, um, so after Hobart, where'd you, where'd you head off to? I, I felt like at that point, and it, it was, you know, it was a good decision for me probably career-wise and, and having to kind of rethink and adjust and, and really leave in Hobart, get them organized and let them know what to expect on game day and go do your thing kind of deal with obviously some coaching, but it was more of let them be who they are um, to, to a situation that was really interesting. Virginia Wesleyan College in Virginia Beach was, was getting started, and, and I got a call, and at that point I was like, you know, it's probably time for me to be a head coach. I wanted to have my own program and see what I could do. So it, building a young program, I, I accepted that position. We had won the national championship in Bird Stadium, actually, um, in May. And, and, uh, and then by, by July one, I was, I was down in Virginia beach and, and getting that, that program started. I'll never forget our first meeting I, fortunate to win the, the national championship kind of top right of, of that division and, and the game. And I had my first team meeting at Virginia Wesleyan and there were 14 guys in the room. It was four o'clock meeting and, uh, I'm looking around and, waiting it gets to like 402 403 starting to get pissed like guys aren't even showing up I mean this was a pretty pretty important meeting first one meeting the guys kind of setting some standards and uh, then it gets to about five after four and I look at a couple guys in the front row were part of the interview process and I was like is this is this going to be a, a common habit where guys are just going to kind of show up late and and not take this serious and they kind of looked around and they said this is the team coach and it was like 14 guys sitting there and it was uh great guys um we we were kind of all in it together and kind of talk about going from maybe like the highest level right winning a national championship to a couple months later sitting in front of 14 guys and trying to build a program there's a there's a, a difference in you know kind of mindset so but what a valuable year you had to be creative as a coach with that many yep. guys and we recruited hard and uh, the guys really bought in. They played hard. There were probably half of those guys could could really play. They were they were athletic. We had a very good goalie. Um, mid year, we got two transfers in from from Long Island. Ended up one of them ended up being an All American there, and um, we had to do a lot of half field creative stuff to simulate game type situations. So I think I learned a lot in that situation just by having to be a creative and find ways to. I mean we. Our extra man, we we played extra man basically with four guys because two guys would rotate through and move so they didn't have to try to catch the ball my first year. And we, we won some games, and it was a real neat experience. The, um, the, they were really committed to lacrosse, which was really, really a neat situation. Don Forsythe was the athletic director, kind of gave me everything I, I needed as a young coach, and we recruited hard. And gosh, a few years later, we were like 17th in the country, you know, and like beating top 10 teams and won like 11 games. And it was really neat to see a program evolve and see the guys buy in and it change in a quick period of time. Um, so had a great run there, really enjoyed it. 
uh, met my wife there. Yeah, she's a Virginia Beach lady, and there you go. And uh, so, so a lot That's of huge, a lot well, of good times there. Those experiences, you know, it, the experience of the championship level at Hobart is amazing. It gives you incredible understanding and knowledge of the highest level, and then you get down to a, a build-out situation, startup. And you realize that necessity is the mother of invention. And it's amazing how much you can grow in those scenarios. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then the startup, it, that's kind of, that kind of defines my career because everywhere I've really gone has, has been a startup. And I think that experience I had at Virginia Westland of grabbing those guys and building it almost ground up and, and, um, really having to find year to year different ways to be competitive. Um, that was the way I'm wired and that those challenges and the competitiveness, yeah. that was awesome for me. So when you look at my steps after that, they, they were all startup programs and, and um, never really jumped into anything. After Virginia Westland, Steve Bevel had taken the uh, Vermont job. And he, he had kind of reached out and, and a couple others. I had just gotten married. My wife had never been out of Virginia Beach. We were like, this is really, I think I kind of did what I could do at Virginia Wesleyan at that point. We were, yeah. we were very fortunate with that last year and, and went out there. And now that was an established traditional program. Yeah. I played a lot of club teams. That's yeah. when I met you, obviously. Yeah. And, well, I was um, going to say, I mean, um, you know, uh, all those startups, I would say Colorado College at the time, when I got there and you got there, Colorado College was on a 10-game winning streak over the University of Denver at that time. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I know. Puts it all in perspective, right? We, that was a big win, DU over CC, that, that, that year in uh, 98, 99. <laughs> no. Yeah, so had a short stint there. Um, really neat experience getting out of region and, and uh, uh, understanding a different school, different uh, you know, academic structure. So you always learn from these experiences. And then when I was at Virginia Westland, Jeff Miller, who was athletic director at Goucher, great, great guy, lacrosse background, played in college, Amherst guy, was an AD at Washington College when they were doing great things, moved to Goucher, you know, wanted to get to the Towson area to raise his family. And uh, he called me the last couple years of Virginia Western when we really had that thing going and wanted me to be the, the coach. And at that point, just Gatcher was just uh, kind of evolving into a co-ed school and I, I didn't really want anything to do with it. When I got to Colorado College, we started a family, my poor wife, no support, you know, everybody's back East and, yeah. and she, um, she was kind of chomping at the bit a little bit. He called me back and said, look, trust me, listen, we've got something going here. We're going to tier this program. We're going to try to build something special at Goucher. Um, I really listened to him that time and went and took a look and saw his passion and how much they were going to commit to lacrosse and went back into that almost like startup type situation. Took over possibly one of the worst five teams in Division Three lacrosse on a <laughs> a campus that just, you know, 10 years earlier went co-ed and, um, and what, a, what a fun experience that was as far as the growth and, um, you know, some really neat things were happening down the stretch there with, with, uh, winning some conference championships and playing in the NCAs and developing players and seeing individual and team success. 
and being able to be in Towson. I mean, like what a great spot. Yes. Right inside the beltway there. And so um, good. We had a lot to sell once we, once we started winning games. Well, actually the first year there, um, the program had been around for like two years and they didn't have a lot of success. They were playing some club, like Towson's club team. And, and um, I went into a good situation because the coach at that time and probably Jeff Miller said, we need to schedule like young, young programs. So we were, we ended up being 13 and three my first year there, but we played, we didn't, we didn't play anybody. <laughs> so, but, but being able to get those wins helped with recruiting. And then you combine that with, you know, a young program trying to do something special, being in Towson, the whole experience, it, um, it all played off each other and made it a pretty, pretty good option for some good lacrosse players as time yeah. went on. So um, I ended up hiring uh, your assistant, John Torpy, yes. out in Denver. And you were like, yeah, man, he's a good one. He's, he, you're you're going to like this guy. He's a worker. And I was like, you know, I believed you. Um, well, except for what I, I remember, realized was that there's maybe nobody on the planet that can get more done. You know, he'll get more done before noon than most people will get done in a week or a month. It's absolutely insane what a machine that guy is. He really is. He was so valuable to getting that program started at Goucher. And I kind of remember how that played out too, because I thought so much of him and you weren't going to have your full-time position until the following year. So I believe John had, had finished his graduate work at Goucher, had applied for some jobs, had been offered a few division three jobs, but knowing you were going to get that full-time assistant, we all kind of like sat on it Yeah. and he came back for one year and then went to you. So that was a good like delay strategy and really paid off for you, paid off for him. And he's just gone on to do, do great things. Yeah. Honestly, he came in at a great time. We had, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting had been done in recruiting and just trying to get a program going. And when he rolled in, we had, we had some, some decent, some good players and had some good times. But uh, yeah, I have to thank you for that one. That was, uh, that was a huge pickup. Yeah. So, so from Goucher, you head down to Mercer. Yes. Yep. I, um, you know, I, I, I felt like at that point I was at kind of a position where it's Goucher forever. You know, that last year was really, really special. I had a great group of, of seniors and underclassmen, but it was a talented team. We won 18 games that year. And, uh, and I was looking at it, like, do I want to stay here, which would have been a good career move if I would have stayed. But then I, I received that call from Mercer and evaluating it. It's like I, I, another challenge, right? Starting a new program in a non-traditional area. Um, that was just really intriguing to me and came and saw what they were doing all the construction, the athletic facility at Mercer was still under construction when I took that job. And, but I did, I, I saw what was right around the corner as far as facilities and the, the opportunity to build something. And I uh, just saw like, that was the time, you know, and that was, that was another interesting move. You know, when I went from Goucher to Mercer and, um, again, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, hit the big time hit division one, but, and uh, this isn't, I don't mean this to be, you know, uh, 
a downplay on the guys that were in the program then, but my Goucher team would have beat up Mercer pretty bad, you know, yep. that, that first year or two I was there. So it was interesting to me seeing that level and how there still are a lot of similarities with the talent level between, you know, those better division three programs and, and, and division two and division one. So um, it, it was a good first, it took a while, I think, to catch traction. Um, you, you know, they say it, it, it takes five, you know, a lot of time, that's what you hear. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I think this year we we're we're here for good. I think, you know, we've built this thing now it took seven. So, but there may be some things underlying some ups and downs and, and maybe being in our area really had to sell people on the fact that good things will happen. And we've been building, you know, incrementally over the last few years, but this, this year was the first year that I could really sit back and say, wow, we've got a special group of guys. We've got a very strong culture. Yeah. We, um, we're balanced amongst our classes because my first four or five years, every freshman class, they had to play because we were bringing in guys maybe right. a touch better than the older guys. So we were young forever. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're, we're more balanced. You, you know, know what, though, too, I think, um, you know, when you think about it, it may take five, it took seven. I mean, one of the things that people need to realize is it's a lot harder to take over a program. Uh, than to start fresh. And so, so you know, you, you look at these programs across Division One, where all of a sudden they, they go varsity or they all of a sudden decide to back their program. Those that got a chance to do it in the pure startup, I'm starting fresh, this is my class, everything about this is my stamp on it, is very different than when you inherit four years of an old culture. It's, it's harder to change that. Uh, in college than, for example, in high school, because, because freshmen hang out with seniors, you know, and, um, and it's like, I think, I think that, um, you know, it makes sense. And now you've got the culture going um, and it's, uh, it's super exciting. Right. Yeah, it really is. This was a really neat spring. Like all of us, it was unfortunate what, what, what took place, but, but understandable. And we're going to, we're going to get through it, but it, it was just really neat to see all those ups and downs, right. And our guys being resilient and, and still like believing and, and getting better. And so many over the last couple of years, one goal losses, two goal losses that, yeah. you know, we're, we're in and we're that close to, to see that um, come together in the belief and being able to play older guys certainly helps in those close no, games, right. Yeah, you're not going to win with us. You know, so so getting off to the start that we got off to was was exciting. I was happy for the players for for what they went through and what they what they were building. And finally, it was paying dividends. You know. So you guys had a great offense this year. Um, will you tell us a little bit about your offensive philosophy and then specifically what you were doing? And I know we chatted about it, but I think listeners would be interested to know. It's such a cool motion and read and react uh, yeah. opportunity for creativity. So if you don't mind, I would love to hear about it. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't mind at all. And this is just kind of evolving constantly through conversations with you watching a lot of film and probably for the last year and a half, I've just really been, you know, when you're in it for a long time, you've got your, your kind of pillars of what you believe in and you, 
yeah. it's natural to go back to those. And, and I went into this year saying, I, I'm getting away from all the things that I would constantly, once something went back, I'd go back to those fundamentals and something that I was doing maybe five years ago that was working at the time. And just wanted to kind of, I wouldn't say blow it up and start over because there's parts of every offense that kind of were incorporated with ours. But, sure. but it all starts with, I mean, my offensive philosophy, like everybody, it's a lot of, it adapts to the group uh, for sure. But, you know, we spent a lot of time in the fall, hands, feet, and brain, right? I mean, that's what, it, it, for lacrosse players, if you can really develop hands, feet, and, and their brain, you're going to be in good shape. And what we started to do uh, this spring required those three, probably more the brain than anything, and understanding how to play rather than just trying to run by your guy, shoot it, throw it forward, throw it back. You know, so um, we we did a nice job of developing that. Uh, really taught the guys how to – my offense philosophy, like everybody, it sounds real simple, but we want to play up, right? We, we, we want to be up at least a half a guy all the time. And the more you can maintain staying up, it doesn't have to be a full-on – you know, slide slow recovery, 65. But as long as one defender's hung and you're up even a half a man, the longer you can keep the defense down a half a man, the, the, the more you're going to build into a really, really good look. So we spent a lot of time kind of teaching guys how to be patient and let's, let's wait for the, the really, really good one. And our guys started to learn the more we could play into a shot clock that just – I wouldn't say the easier it became, but the more looks, more options, and better scoring opportunities uh, would come. So, so basically, we were we were scoring a lot of goals, obviously, and we're fortunate to have a couple really good individuals. Sean Goldsmith is a phenomenal attackman that was actually leading the country in scoring um, when the season came to an end. But our shooting percentage in the past has been around as a team twenty seven percent. We were shooting it at 37%. Wow. And it all came down to breaking down shots. We were able to play up a half guy for a period of time, not taking that first shot, staying up, scrambling the defense, and we were finishing shots inside of six yards a lot. And that changed kind of our look offensively. And, um, and it obviously equated to a lot of goals as, as we were moving along. And, and some of the – things we were doing and I think it's how offense is evolving might be getting off tangent a little bit but 10 years ago it was three attackmen three middies you'd rotate in your group right it dodge follow float clear through um, then five years ago it became lefties on one side righties pairs two-man game um, you big little behind so it was kind of like behind different scripted changing and now I think positionless offense is the way to go and that's what we started in the fall and all the way through the spring we didn't refer to guys as attackmen and we didn't refer to guys as midfielders um it didn't matter and we had them in all of our drills they just played all over the field to understand how to play and what options are and uh once they really got the They'd see practice plans and we'd have positional groups and it was offense, you know, and everybody's listed together. And yeah. once they started to be comfortable in different spots, so Sean Goldsmith, who's 
likes to play behind the cage and scored a lot of high school points doing that. Now he's up top, top center at the point. He's in a high wing. He's in a low wing. Um, and midfielders are behind on the goal line, playing tight, playing wide. So the positionless offense really helped us and playing with more guys above the goal. So you would ask, what are some of the things that we did differently this year than in the past? Just adding another guy above GLE really stresses the defense. So a lot of times you roll off, we play two man behind, we do razor picks, we do a lot of that. We weren't doing much of that. We were really just having a hangman, one guy that could push to the goal line, hang his guy, sit on the back pipe, cat and mouse a little bit to maybe hold that guy out to give us an advantage above the goal. Or if they felt like he really had to cheat up field, we, we get a lot of hang situations and sneaks. I think I yep. sent you a few goals that yeah. we scored and we were getting a ton of backpipe sneaks and, and creative ways to score goals. So we ended up with five above the goal line pretty much all of the time. And it, and it really worked out well. And it wasn't always the same five. So our hangman at X, a lot of times on the backside, would flash up to that back wing or inside, and a guy would roll off and be the one X. And it would be a midfielder from time to time. Then the defense is really kind of out of sorts. So positionless, five men above. Um, having five men above the goal really it makes the backside – of the defense uh, puts them under a lot of stress, makes them think because in the past, at least what I was doing and watched a lot of lacrosse, I think what a lot of people were doing backside action, right. But a lot of exchanges and two man motion to keep the field balanced and move the defense. But when you watch it, all the defenses were just, it's easy to defend too. They were just holding spots. Yeah. Right. And so we're running around trying to create offense and opportunities and the defense is just holding. They're yeah. not stressed. They have the advantage and we're never up and they're never scrambled. So adding that fifth guy, which in our offense means three off ball made it so much harder for the defense to adjust. And they couldn't hold spots adding that third guy yeah. that could flash cut, cut. draw to keep them from holding because they've got to honor that cutter for a period of time. And if they tried to hold, we were getting in gaps. So that was probably the biggest thing, moving guys positionless and having three guys off ball in some movement patterns rather than just two. And being able to cut the middle with midis, you know, I mean, that's like something that you just, a lot of, you know, the, the triangles, classic, you know, three midis, three attack, dodgeball, mm -hmm. it's hard to cut. A mini because yes. they're responsible for balancing the backside of the field so you can get it up and over and dodge the backside. But when you have, you know, even a four-man motion, you can get that. That Syracuse, classic Syracuse motion offense gets yes. a nice backside cutter. I always really like that. But, again, the five-man is great because now, like you said, you can hang up the X guy and get really good actions with mumbos exchanges rotations and and those cuts man i mean it is so much easier to get open on a on a cut the middle against the short stick if you can get if you can get no doubt well the two things i learned from it um one is talking about the cuts in the past our offenses a cut was more of a clear 
And I think a lot of people go in there. So they lost their purpose to cutting. They were more like back cutting a guy to create space for the ball carrier. Right. And our guys understood quickly that now we're cutting with a purpose because that inside cutter with the backside three was open a lot. And um, so we were getting a lot of those inside looks by flashing guys with a purpose inside. And then having five up above the goal, it gives you kind of the best of both worlds, ball side and off ball side, because when it's only four, I think something has to give. Like, so if you're playing two man and you're trying to mirror or playing two man on one side, you have two on the backside exchanging. Right. Defense can hold pretty easy, right? Or you're clearing for that dodger. So then you don't have that extra threat on the ball side everybody's backside right so it wasn't quite so now with five you can have two ball side three backside yep three's more dangerous on the backside but two's more dangerous on the ball side and you've got those combined it's it's um it's nice it, it's tough for the defense we were able to play some really structured extremely well coached defense especially in our last couple games and um Teams that we've played in the past and struggled to score, to hit double digits, and uh, to see the looks we were getting and scoring 17, 18, 20 goals against these really organized, well-coached defenses was um, obviously being on the offensive side of it. It was fun to watch, but it just proves that what we were doing wasn't just individuals just beating guys. It was more of a philosophy that they bought into and it was extremely stressful for the defense all the time. Every second of the shot clock, they were scrambling. What, what just popped into my head that's interesting is that when you think about two-man game, it's like addition by subtraction, right? So if you have two people uh, executing two-man game and you have to slide to that, it leaves three to guard four on the backside, as opposed to in isolation, if they slide to it, it leaves four to guard five. What just popped into my head that's super interesting is in, in this offense that you're running, when you hang one guy up, you've eliminated him entirely. So now when you have a two-man game and you have to slide, it really leaves two to guard three over there. And yes. with that cut you're referring to, it just opens things up uh, drastically. Right. And, and two to guard three. And that's exactly – that's the picture. I mean, if yeah. you look at when we were – Playing well, obviously it wasn't perfect all the time, but when we were into it and, and really firing on all cylinders, it was that three on two on the backside. And we had talked in the fall. I had talked to you about that neutral position. Yeah. If, if oh, yeah. Fall. Talk about that. That's really cool. Oh, man. And I'll tell you, when we started getting into those, you know, two defenders to guard those backside three because of the motion and the, the, the pressure we were putting on the ball side, our, our neutral guy getting underneath the defense was wide open. And you probably saw from some of those clips that were getting dunks against pretty good teams right inside. It's just a – it's an offset position that's really tough to guard, and it seems so simple when you talk about it. And you're like, well, yeah, why wouldn't – I think we always try to get our guys there, but I don't know if we do as coaches. So we always – whether we're running this five above or more of a traditional, we also have a motion, more of a traditional look just to change the picture. So even when we're in our traditional look, we try to offset our three attackmen 
as much as possible. So we have a guy at X, we have a, what we call a neutral, and he's right, he's kind of pinching a pipe is, is one of our terms, and he's kind of on the goal line, like almost straddling the goal line, no matter where the ball is, where he can front swing, he can roll behind, and he's underneath the defense. And his guy always drifts upfield, so there's always a gap around the goal if eyes are up and skill can get him the ball. It's and neutral, then we have an neutral meaning it's not, it's not at X, it's not on the wing. It's kind of it. in the no man's land it's, near the goal line. It maybe, maybe not quite halfway, but kind of like that. You got it. He's stuck like right in the middle. And uh, so we have our target, which is the crease guy and the X guy, and he's drifting right in between those two. And at any time, that neutral guy can play with the target up top or the X guy behind. So we started doing a lot of that in the fall. And then it evolved into our five above the goal line. And what would happen is when two had to play three on the backside, we'd drift the guy down to that pipe in that neutral spot, whether it was a vacate guy from inside, a backside guy, and he just pinched that low corner really hard to defend. Because the, the only guy that can really defend him if the defense is having to slide recover is the guy that's playing the hangman. And if he drags him and starts to drift upfield, now our hangman is sitting, whether it's a ball side sneak or X or hanging a defenseman. And um, so we you just go with a the, lot of different looks out of it. You would go with the neutral guy. You would go with the one, somebody from the three-man side into a ball side neutral position sometimes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes. Mostly, mostly um, – when, when part of the three-man backside, when we'd hit the neutral, it would be off-ball. So a guy vacating might – if we went over the top of the backside wing, we vacated from inside. The other inside guy maybe mirrored and became the, the two-ball side. This is just a scenario. If you can kind of picture it with me. Maybe yeah. a top center cut down. That's, that's really good motion and spacing. But the guy that was drifting out would start to drift and then go right to that neutral spot. Oh, you'd get it on the backside dodge? Say that again? You would get this neutral look more so on, on, the, on the second round of dodges after you attack? Yes. Um, yes. Yep. Yeah, I would say the second rotation is when it was the best. Now, we would get a ball side neutral because we would – but that would be more of our hangman, if that makes sense. So, on our maybe second yeah. series of dodges, he would sneak and sit right on that ball side pipe and then maybe the vacate guy, if they're communicating, he would go back to the hangman. I see. That's why it's positionless. So we would have ball side mm -hmm. and off ball neutrals, which really kind of puts the defense. If you can skip it by the ball side neutral, we right. talked about that in the fall, yeah. Yeah. and then swing it to the backside or just dodge up that backside. Yeah. It's, um, there's not enough defenders to really cover that. Right. It's just a, it's a really interesting little overload. Um, yep. Like you said, skipping it past that guy, mm. kind of like the equivalent of, you know, if you have two behind, you know, in an umbrella and you dodge a wing and you don't clear through the adjacent player and you, you sit that person right on the goal line, but then you skip it to the backside attackman, there's a lot of space back there. No, no doubt. And that, that's exactly it. And it's not as traditional. I, I think at times you'll see that in any motion offense because a guy gets stuck. He might be late and he just wants to hold. He thinks he's dangerous. But when you're regularly doing it and the guys are learning the looks, it's just, it's not 
It's not as traditional as what you're used to seeing. Uh, it's true because traditionally you clear, you clear through. 100% or drift, right? Or, or, or drift, but drift you're not off. like actually standing in the way. Yes. It's, it's counterintuitive that that would be a good thing to do. Um, and, and, but the reason is, is that it, it, it puts the, the defense doesn't really know who to slide from now. And if they do slide or help off of a crease and you zip it through past that guy, you know, you've got a lot of space back there. No, no. It's a, it's a ball side overload. Yeah. That's what you're doing. And just drawing too many so, defenders to the ball side. This offense is a lot like a box lacrosse offense. It's, it's a lot like the Penn State type of offense. Yes. What are some of the things that you've been studying to, to learn it? I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the air gate. Well, that was me and goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. I think um, more of the off-ball stuff is what I've been studying and watching all those teams, watching, you know, watching Penn State a lot. That probably got me the most intrigued just watching them last year and how they were scoring with all of those cuts. I'm like, we're not scoring yeah. on cuts. Right, exactly. So watching that. So I would say what I'm studying the most is that backside three and the different movements and where to get to to remain dangerous at all times. And that's the other key to successful offense, right, is to be a pass away from making a major play. And, and um, I think in the past when we were just following Dodgers to balance the field or drifting out the back just to open up the crease a little bit more, a lot of that motion was, was not dangerous. Yeah. So I'm trying to find ways for guys constantly to attack the, the goal. Here's another interesting thing, and some coaches would probably say I'm, I'm really wrong, but I think the teams that are scoring a lot of goals are constantly playing forward. And, and I'd like to know your thoughts on this. So back passes, you know, it used to be the two-man throwback, pull passes, reverse it, throw it back upfield. And what I was finding is it, defenses were maybe going off the mirror guy. Then when you throw it back, it's a negative pass. It's a delayed pass. It's adding a pass. The defense can sit and play that better. Now there's a time from time to time. But what I'm studying now is – the more you can play fast and forward, the more you're keeping an advantage because a negative pass doesn't play into the defensive hands, so to speak. Yeah. So what we're doing, when it gets to the back side and we're attacking the cage, we're certainly looking inside. We're looking to finish a dodge. But we want to attack downhill and move forward, forward, forward. And um, I think playing forward has made us a lot more dangerous. So I'm looking at playing forward, and the backside three rather than more of the traditional two 
and finding ways for those guys to play off of each other. I mean, it's pretty easy, the ball side, too, right? You can set a hard pick. You can mirror. You can give separation. You just play off each other. Yeah. Um, a hangman, be creative, be crafty. But those three that are on the back side is remaining dangerous, cutting with a purpose. That's where a lot of this is evolving to. Yeah, I think the the idea of 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 throwing it, you know, dump downs, throwing playing forward, is great, and and it's it's I think it's because if you if you draw the slide off the mirror and throw it back, either that guy can kind of scrape back to it, or it's a relatively easy rotation. Everybody's pretty good at that. Uh, but what's really tricky is when you dump it to X, and you especially if you carry it, you know, if you dodge low enough that now that mirror is still in the follow spot. But if you throw it to X, they've got to cover both sides of the field now and the interior. And so that's, it, it's, 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 I call it reversing it to the follow, where you dump mm -hmm. it to X, reverse it back up to the follow, the same way you would dump it to X and get it backside to the float, the same right. way you would dump it to X and look inside. But it really gives you a lot of options. Um, Denver has done this for years. Great at it. Albany does this. This is like really a big part of Albany's offense. Low wing dodges, throw it to X and, and, and skip it. You're almost skipping it right back to the follow. But it's, it's a really hard recovery. And it, it, it's, a, it's, it's true lateral spacing. So I, I love it. Yeah. So interesting. I agree. Do you guys do more mirrors, more two-man game, or do you just try to mix it up and why? We, we mix it up. And I'll be honest, we don't really – we don't set a lot of hard picks. We, we kind of, our term is ghost. So in our two man, we want the off ball guy to get to about seven yards and make a, a difference. And this all stemmed from, you know, a few years ago, we just weren't real skilled. So when we were bringing too hard to the ball, maybe our IQ wasn't where it needed to be, our skill set. So when we'd set those hard picks and really play tight, we weren't really – we might get a little advantage, but then we couldn't get to the next step because we weren't making a good decision mentally or our skill set couldn't, couldn't get the ball to where it needed to get. So I started fooling around more with showing more of a hard two-man but letting that guy ghost. And we came up with seven yards as a good spot because then the guy – there's enough separation, so if they're going to jump off the ghost and he steps away, now you've got eight to ten yards separation. The ball can get there. It's in a pocket. We're good. Um, but it also puts stress on the ball defender because there's communication. They think it's a pick, right? But the guy isn't going to leave the ghost quite as much because he knows how dangerous his guy is, um, it being about seven yards inside of the dodge. So – now we're evolving more into like picking the picker and repicks because we are a little bit more skilled, maybe a little bit more sense, offensive sense. But I think we ghost and mirror more than we set hard picks at this point in time. Yep. And uh, the ghost is basically a, another word for a slip. Yes. Yep. Yep. A slip, um, uh, a follow. If a guy goes hard over the top, he might step out and drift a little bit mm -hmm. um, for that backside look like you were saying. It might get to him in two, but he's pretty open in those situations. Or get up there, 
let his guy get above it because they think they need to switch, and then he can slip it. So there's not a lot of contact in our pick game, I guess is what you could say. But like your philosophy, I still think the Dodger, even though there's some separation, is drawing the attention of two defensemen. Yeah, and I think um, you know at some point you're you're gonna have if they don't if they're just not going to switch, um, then you know that's when you got to start setting some hard picks. Right, and, I, I agree. Um, I'm sure you would have done that anyways. You just didn't play enough games to really get there. People were switching or showing, and it was yeah. giving you the step that you need um, yeah. to be able to get what you want. And the reason I was asking is because it's so interesting to think about how a defense has to think about sliding in this offense because if you're mirroring well okay they can slide off the mirror if they want to and it's pretty easy to figure that one out but then if you're picking and you have to slide now you got to send somebody else and that's mm -hmm. the the real tricky part right um, of this two-man you know pairs action in general um and this is really just pairs action with a three-man back or three-man side well it 100 percent is but adding that third guy to the backside, and now you've got a free cutter and roamer and a guy that's drawn heavy attention, I, I agree. And we went into, as it evolved, we got in the last few games, we actually put it in against North Carolina, more of a hard two-man, wider wing two-man, and a more spread backside three, um, which was getting into your scenario. So we were drawing a little right. bit of a longer slide. Yep. Um, it almost looked more open with a hard yeah. cut down up yeah, top. Yeah. And um, so we were playing a little bit more hard two man to draw that third defender yeah. out into that ball side. And then we had a lot of space on the backside and scored a couple nice goals um, that, using that and then stuck with it. And we, we scored a few in each game with that more of a hard two man. So that was evolving, yeah, but sure. more so because the players were able to do it. You know, then, yeah. then uh, I would have loved to have been doing a lot of what we did this year three years ago. And we probably would have won a lot more games. But I, I just don't know if we had – we had good lacrosse players, but I don't know if we were skilled enough and smart enough. And now we're, we're getting to that point where we can put them in scenario. They can read and, and understand situations and get the ball where it needs to go and, and uh, make good plays. And we ended up – because of this, and I guess that – the biggest kind of compliment you can get when you're scoring goals with this newer offense that we're working with, we started down a stretch seeing a lot of zone. Teams just started to fall into zone. So, and that was, I really like teaching zone offense. That's just one of my pet peeves. I like, I really enjoy that because it's really gaps and X's and O's and carries and skewing them and yeah. making them get confused and drawing two to the ball on a carry and playing up. So um, we were, I felt like we were doing some really creative things against the zone as well. And I think you saw some of those clips that I sent you with some of the double carries. And, but I, the reason why I'm getting to that is when you're playing with five above the goal, we don't have to change a whole bunch of what we're doing when we face a zone. You know, maybe a little more patience, maybe a few more carries to get to get get in gaps and draw two on a pass. But for the most part, against yeah. the zone, that ball side two and the backside three, yeah, really hard to defend in his zone. I agree. And you know, the the throwing it ahead, 
you know, yep. bumping, bumping to X and, and spacing the field laterally. No, no doubt. You, know, you basically dodge a corner and bring that guy down to where they pass it off um, and hit X. The, the, that mirror behind him, you know, is going to be open on that side while the float is up on the other side while you got two guys inside. So. Yep, yep. Um, hey, real quick, um, before we change topics into zone or whatever else, um, have you tried to run much – three-man ball side instead of just two like in box across there's two lefties and three righties or mm -hmm. two two righties and three lefties and they they attack both sides pretty equally with their strong side and weak. They're, they're, they're when they're strong left they got three lefties right and so regardless of what side the ball's on they're they're doing on ball three-man action and off ball three-man action depending on what side the ball's on have you experimented with that at all or thought about well, it yeah, that, that's a great question because that comes into one of those situations where a, a lot of us as coaches, whether we want to kind of admit it or not, our best coaching happens from what these guys figure out on the field, you know. So I wasn't necessarily teaching that three-man ball side. But what was happening in our offense is they were getting comfortable with it. If this, again, there's not a diagram, so it's a lot of words, but if you can imagine a ball side, two backside, three, you go top side and you rotate those three. Yep. As the ball goes forward, if you go top side to a forward pass, yep. you don't have enough time on that next point of attack to get a clean ball side two. It's a ball side three. Right. So we would That's have where you're flashes. getting neutral. That's where you get your under. stuff. Right? You got it. Yep. So that neutral guy would end up being part of that now ball side three. So we would end up with those quick backside attacks being a ball side three. And uh, really liked it and learned just with what our guys were doing, their comfort level of how to clear, how to, that neutral would go up and set an up pick. And maybe the guy that threw it to the wing on the ball side three would back cut his guy and flash inside. And um, it really gave different scenarios. So where I, we didn't break it down and necessarily have rules for it and have it written out in our offense. It just happened. It just happened. But so also we're going to be teaching it. You could initiate with a ball side three too. You could. And, and then, and all of a sudden, if you draw a slide, it's one guarding two. <laughs> yes. Yep. So true. So, well, awesome stuff, Kyle, man. I, I can't tell you how much I uh, appreciate you taking the time. You know, we love talking lacrosse and to be able yeah. to record it. It's crazy. We've been doing this for 20 something years and we've never recorded one. So I'm glad we are. Not I know. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on. This is, this is great. And really appreciate what you're doing. I've always really enjoyed all the material that you put put out there in our conversations, but I, I think where we are, right now in our world there's no better time for you to be doing what you're doing i think it's keeping a lot of lacrosse enthusiasts very engaged and still learning and i mean i'm spending a lot of time on my computer looking up jm3 sports material to listen to the the guests that you've had have been phenomenal and uh the lacrosse knowledge and wisdom getting thrown out there is really special so um it, it's it's growing our game there's no doubt about it. And I, I appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Say hi to Angie and the fam, and I'll be in touch. I definitely will. Thanks. Take care. Bye.